0: Welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Hoover Harris, editor of DegreeOrNotDegree.com, and with me today is Dr. Warren Treadgold, who is the National Endowment for the Humanities Professor of Byzantine Studies and Professor of History at St. Louis University. He has a BA and PhD from Harvard and has taught at several other schools in addition to SLU. He's here to discuss his latest book, The University We Need, Reforming American Higher Education. And as you'll hear, this is not about just changing existing schools, it's about how to create a brand new university. Dr. Treadgold, thank you for joining me today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: I always start by asking guests to introduce themselves, and I think in your case, it's especially important that people know your experience and credentials as a context for what you're proposing. So could you please tell us a little bit about who you are and
1: what you've done? Sure, I will. I would say I'm not just talking about starting a new university. I am talking about reforming existing universities, and I've taught at several of them. I had temporary appointments at UCLA, Stanford, Berkeley, and permanent appointments. Well, tenure track appointment at, at uh, Hillsdale College, Florida International University, and St. Louis University. My field is Byzantine history and literature. Which sounds kind of esoteric and is kind of esoteric. And I published ten books and a bunch of articles on that. This is my first book, though I've published some articles on higher education in general. And why did I write it? Well, I wrote it because I saw that things were getting very, very bad indeed in the university. I don't think that's probably news to lots of people, but uh we've been seeing a trend that many of us hoped would be reversed, and it hasn't been. Things have just gotten steadily worse, which doesn't always happen, but so far it's happened pretty much all the way through my academic career. And I got my degree in 1977, so it's been a long time.
0: I gather this is a pretty significant departure from your 10 books, and I I know you've had, for example, a 1,000-plus page history On the Byzantine Empire. This is a very different book in that regard. How long would you say you've been thinking about these ideas? And I see in the book, they're very specific proposals at some points. How long has this been uh, developing in your mind?
1: Well, I've been thinking about what was wrong with the American University ever since I was in graduate school, at least. Well, perhaps since the academic job market fell through, fell in, uh, about 1970, which is, there was a very dramatic overnight, almost, uh, drop in the academic job market from one where everybody got jobs went to where it was really, really hard. And I wanted to know what had gone wrong then. But, ever since that time, I've been considering what has been going wrong. I often said to myself that sooner or later, I was going to write a book on the university, and finally, I decided that I was actually going to do it about three years ago
0: and It's a bold one, and it's an original one. Let's start by reviewing some of the the problems that you mentioned with the current state of higher ed. You acknowledge in the book that these problems have been well documented elsewhere and and the broader problems are well-known. Generally, for example, everyone knows that the faculty skew very far leftward politically in most places, and they're also obsessed with matters of social justice and oppression. But you also explain the specific dynamics of how some of these problems arise and how they're reinforced. And one example of that is bad teaching. How much bad teaching would you say is out there across our university campuses?
1: Well, bad teaching comes under a number of headings. It's uh, Teaching isn't just bad in one way. Actually, I think the very worst problem today is very easy grading and students who just don't even show up at class at all or who spend practically no time on the reading and, and pay no attention in class uh that's a problem that transcends ideology really and i don't uh, i've i've seen it gradually happen it's a, a separate problem actually from the increasing leftism of american professors there are some leftist professors who are perfectly uh rigorous teachers there are some non-ideological professors who, for one reason or another, have decided that they're going to give in to the pressure to give everybody A's and and not have rigorous standards. So that problem really is beyond ideology. It's uh, though there certainly is bad teaching. There's teaching that's nothing but indoctrination, and that is a separate problem. There are there are two problems. It's not just leftism. It's also postmodernism. The idea that. There isn't anything true or false. It's just a question of shaping the narrative, and you have to shape it so that it uh, gives power to the right people rather than power uh, to the wrong people who have shaped their own narrative. And that has linked up with leftism. It didn't start out that way in th- to begin with. It began by postmodernists who decided that uh, – all there was was power. There was no such thing as truth, which doesn't actually make much sense in traditional Marxist terms. The traditional Marxist believes very much in the truth. He believes that Marx found the truth. He had scientific socialism that really showed how the world worked, and it wasn't relativistic at all. But that at some point, and it happened gradually, the postmodernists plugged into Marxism. And the way it works is that there isn't really any truth. There's only power, and you want the power to go to the good people who are uh, the, uh, well, originally it was going to be the working class. It isn't the working class so much anymore. Now it's women, it's racial minorities, it's uh, homosexuals, transsexuals, uh, anybody you can say is oppressed. And that really is a new hybrid ideology that is being put across in the classroom. But that's separate from the problem of easy grading and uh, no standards. Those two also uh, have moved together to some extent, but there are a lot of problems with the university. There are several layers of problems with American universities.
0: Yeah, it's a pretty grim picture you portray in the early parts of the book when you're explaining the need for reform and a new university. As far as those two problems, the postmodernism and what I'll call the lackadaisical attitude of students and not working hard, are they related in that postmodernism is a giant catch all excuse since there is no absolute truth? There are no accurate grades. Does that all become a rationale for just not caring and not doing?
1: I haven't seen that defended explicitly, but I think it's there in the background. If you do tell students that there's nothing true, then most of them are going to say, well, you know, if I can make up my own truth and I don't have to have any information, what am I doing here in class? Or at least why can't I play solitaire on my uh, computer while I'm supposedly in class if you have an attendance policy? Yes, I think that it does there is a connection there, but you don't see it made very much. Professors understandably don't start out by saying, well, of course, there's no such thing as truth, so you don't have to pay any attention to what I say in class.
0: <laughs> right. Well, as far as the not working too hard for grades, is grade inflation a real problem as much as people think it is? And if so, what, what can be done about
1: that? Great inflation is a very serious problem, and I think people have overlooked the reason why it's so serious. It's serious because if you give everybody A's, they won't pay any attention to the material and they won't learn anything at all. And that's uh, it, it. then it becomes irrelevant what's being taught because the students pay no attention to it, and for them, uh, college is just a, a vacation. And without some kind of standards you you just well of course, if you don't give everybody an A but you give b's to the people who don't have in their papers at all or who show total ignorance of the course, then some people will learn a little tiny bit of something but In general, if you don't have high standards, you can't get information across and people don't learn anything. So that's what's really important about it. The other thing that's bad, of course, is that now almost every university factors into salaries and often into hiring, whether you're considered a good, in quotation marks, teacher or not. And though you can get fairly good marks for being a good teacher by being a good teacher. You can also get extremely high marks for being a good teacher by giving everybody a's. And that's very easy to do, much easier than being a good teacher, which requires things like preparation and knowledge of how to give a lecture.
0: So is there a quantitative way that great inflation could be controlled where averages are taken into consideration or, or something like that?
1: Yes, this is something that I, as far as I know, I'm the only person who thought of this, but it seems incredible that I'm the only person who thought of this because it seems to me so obvious. I thought of it long ago when people said nothing could be done about great inflation. Uh, Now, especially that everything's online, this isn't even hard. It's not difficult to compute how easy a grader, a professor is. What you do is you take all the grade point averages of the students in his class. If he has, let's say, 30 students in the class, you find out what their grade point averages are and get an overall average, and then see what grades his average grades are. You don't want to do it by individual students, of course because it's certainly possible that a student who's done well up until now does badly, uh, a student who's uh, done badly has redeemed himself and is doing well, that a student is good in mathematics but not good in history or vice versa. But if overall, among a considerable pool of students, you find that the professor is giving higher grades than other people, than other professors are. You can be pretty sure this guy is a very easy grader. And of course, if you make any quantitative study at all, you'll find who's giving all A's. And that kind of thing makes it very easy to, to see whether people are easier graders than most of their colleagues. Now, of course, you don't want to say that the beginning of of stopping grade inflation is that you should grade very much more harshly than the average of all your fellow professors, because that's really not fair to your students. That isn't what the grade means anymore. But if you did measure whether professors were giving higher grades than other professors and penalize them for that, there would be a steady downward pressure on grades that would end grade inflation. It would lead to grade deflation. And eventually it would turn out to be important. Of course, the problem with grade inflation is that you can't inflate inflate grades forever. At some point, everybody's getting an A, and there isn't any differentiation between the the best student and the worst student. Whereas if you have great deflation, it presumably would not be across the board. The very best student would still get the A, but the really bad student who never shows up and doesn't learn anything would get an F.
0: Another recommendation on the subject of improving the quality of teaching involves abolishing tenure. And I believe most people, when they think about bad teaching, they think it's because professors are living in their ivory towers and they aren't teaching enough and they are busy researching too much and writing books that not many people will read, and as a result, the quality of teaching suffers. But I gather you don't share that view. What's your opinion of tenure and how it relates to good teaching?
1: As for tenure, it's uh, tenure is mostly a form of protection for professors, of course, and to allow them to do research the The people who think that professors ought to teach a lot don't seem to care whether the professors are teaching well, and teaching loads are really different from what the professor is teaching. If the professor is giving everybody a's, I say at one point that it seems that many of the people who don't like low teaching loads would be satisfied if professors gave a uh, hundred courses to uh, 10,000 students, gave them all A's, which would be pretty easy if all you have to do is fill fill out the grade sheets and don't have to worry about actually showing up for lectures and grading papers and grading exams, Uh, that shows the absurdity of the thing. You have to care a little bit about quality of teaching, too. And what makes a good teacher is somebody who knows his subject. And if the professor doesn't publish on the subject generally, that means that he has nothing to contribute of his own. Now, it's possible that he's spending all that time reading, but on the other hand, if he's spending all that time reading on his subject and has nothing to contribute, this is certainly not a a first-rank intellect that we're talking about. Surely, after reading all of that, because many of the things that people write today disagree with each other, he has some kind of position of his own that he wants to express. It doesn't mean, of course, that he has to publish huge amounts of, of material. He may have modest amounts of things to say, but he should have something to say. And if he has a teaching load that really doesn't allow that, or if he has a teaching load that... uh means that he's rewarded only for his teaching and not for his scholarship, then he'll just show up for class, give people easy grades, and and it won't make any difference what he says. I've given the example. One of the reasons I think why people don't quite understand college teaching is that they think of things like elementary school teaching, maybe even high school teaching. If you're teaching first graders to read you probably know how to read. The problem with a bad first-grade teacher is not that he doesn't know how to read. There probably are very few first-grade teachers who don't read very well, but most of them read just fine. However, if you're teaching something like, uh, if you're teaching Arabic, if you're teaching calculus, if you're teaching Byzantine history, you need some in-depth knowledge of this, and Even if you have marvelous teaching skills, if you're teaching them something that's wrong, if you don't understand the subject yourself, you can't convey some knowledge that you don't have and understanding that you don't have to a bunch of students. It's impossible. And that's the reason why you need to keep active with scholarship.
0: You make the case that another cause of bad teaching has to do with the point of hire, that faculty hiring committees are simply doing a poor job screening candidates. And you describe the dynamics of typical faculty hiring committees in great detail, and it's pretty depressing. Can you say more about why these hiring committees do such a poor job?
1: Well, part of it isn't really their fault. And I've been on plenty of hiring committees. You should realize that when you're hiring somebody, typically in your department, it's because You don't have somebody who does the thing that you're hiring in. If you're hiring in a history department, you don't have anybody who does Middle Eastern history, then you want somebody who does Middle Eastern history. But then who's going to be on the hiring committee? Well, typically it's three members of the department that you've already got. Let's say somebody in American history, somebody in French history, uh, somebody in Chinese history. And these people don't know very much about Middle Eastern history. Then the applications come in, and because the job market is terrible, there will be typically more than 100 of them. And there they all are, and most of them have their PhDs, and those who don't say they're about to get them. The the letters are all good, the letters of recommendation, because the professors want their students to get jobs. The grades are all good, because graduate students typically get all A's. And what do you do with all those applications? You just don't know what to do with them. So what many professors have been doing is looking over the files in a very superficial way. Affirmative action is very important because people keep getting nagged about diversity. So you can tell who's a woman usually. If you read the application with the least care, you can tell who's black, you can tell who's Hispanic because they, they know it will be to their advantage and they let you know. So you can hire those people or put those on the short list. But, of course, also you are supposed to hire, or at least a lot of people think you're supposed to hire, on the cutting edge, on the most recent research, and you look for something that's postmodernist, and you look for something that sounds interesting, and that kind of thing usually appears even from the title of the thesis, and you don't have to read that huge file. And besides, if you do read the huge file, you're not in a very good position to evaluate it anyway. And reading a hundred huge files, why, well, it's just it's usually just impossible. So that's the way that we get people trying to get out of this impossible job of evaluating hundreds of applications in fields they don't know. They do it by ideological hiring, and they do it by affirmative action hiring for diversity, so-called.
0: So there needs to be much more rigor in good screening and, and hiring for better reasons.
1: Yes. I. And there is one of the proposals I make that doesn't have to do with the new university. I think there should be some central uh, clearinghouse for dissertations. And, of course, it's all very easy because now you can send a dissertation just with a click of, as an email attachment, it doesn't take any time at all. And something like the system that's now used for evaluating applications for the the National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowships could be used to evaluate dissertations. And if that were done, and there were some numerical rating that were attached to it, The evaluation could be done by professors at other universities from the ones that were doing the hiring who really know something about the subject, and it really could be something closer to a meritocracy rather than this uh, almost chance system in which ideology is taken over. And it's taken over partly through intellectual laziness, but of course partly through conviction. There is certainly a tendency among many professors to say we need to get people who are progressives in there, we need to get people who are diverse in there, we need to get uh, people who are doing pioneering research, and of course, the pioneering and innovative research is really just rehashing what's been done for the last 40 years, but uh, since there isn't anything new that's come along on top of that, they still call it innovative.
0: And just to elaborate, this PhD or dissertation clearinghouse, if you will, you envision that perhaps as a federally sponsored activity, correct, where you have senior scholars, perhaps retired or semi-retired scholars in each major field reviewing and scoring the academic output. Is that
1: right? Yes, that's right. It really has to be done by the government because you could easily require it. You simply say that as condition for federal funding All universities have to submit all dissertations. And it's not even expensive. I mean, it doesn't cost anything. It's just an email attachment. So they do it. There wouldn't be any reason not to do it. It would cost something for administration. I think that you should pay something in honoraria to the professors who are evaluating the dissertations. But I would particularly concentrate on senior scholars, and a lot of these people are retired, so they have plenty of time, but nonetheless, I think that they'd like keeping their hand in this sort of way and reading these dissertations, and I think it's uh, it's perfectly workable. You just need to have the idea and you need to have it implemented. And it would cost some money, but in terms of the federal budget, it would cost essentially nothing. It's a rounding error.
0: So that is an example, as you say, of a proposal for reform rather than starting over from scratch. And you have already mentioned reform in areas like improving and addressing great inflation. But a lot of your book is about creating a new world-class university from scratch. And I'd like to discuss that with you more. I, I suppose the first question there is, why in this day and age do we need to make a new, brand new campus a new school from scratch? Why can we not focus on reforming some of our great traditional institutions?
1: It would be wonderful if we could but this is something this is an idea really that I came up, came up with only about 3 or 4 years ago. You know it seemed to me that sooner or later American universities would come to their senses and the bad things that were happening would reverse themselves. And I suppose sooner or later it can happen. It is a mistake, as all historians know, and I am a historian, to say that this has been happening for a while. It will go on happening exactly that way in a straight line projection for the future. Uh, That, well, for example, people were saying 50 years ago that for population growth, it would be like that. The population would continue to grow exponentially. That problem has largely solved itself. And... You know, a lot of people said communism would go on forever. It fell very abruptly. So I thought that things might start to get better. Now I've seen that the herd instinct of American universities is just too strong. The selective hiring of leftists for so many years means that there just isn't a significant group of people who uh, object sufficiently to what's going on that you can expect most universities to turn themselves around. After all, you can see what the climate is in most universities when an outside speaker comes who says something that isn't part of the leftist consensus. Even the uh, people who supposedly defend the outside speakers are defending them so weakly they're saying, you know, yes, yes, their views are terrible, but you should be willing to listen to people you disagree with so you know how to refute them. Well, that's not a very ringing endorsement of outside speakers. It shows you that there's just an absolute monoculture of in ideological terms on campus and this diversity, diversity, diversity stuff is being repeated as a mantra. If you start with a new university, it's not that there aren't some professors out there who disagree, but there aren't enough of them. There isn't a critical mass in any one campus, and especially there aren't particularly good ones. Now, there are some institutions with a conservative reputation, not very many, but generally they aren't institutions that have any kind of academic reputation. And in some ways, they sort of discredit themselves. The people who are in favor of leftism say, all right, well, yes, yeah, sure, there are places, there are small fundamentalist colleges, various places, and they disagree with us. But that just shows that if you're any good, you agree with us. Those places are no good at all. What you need to do is to start one that really is not And it also shouldn't be a small college either, because there are limits to what small colleges can do. They aren't at the forefront of American education. You need somebody, you need a an institution that can uh, really go one-on-one with Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, and Berkeley, the real leaders of American education. And I think it could be done. It's, uh, if anything... Considering the enormous expansion of American higher education over the last hundred years, it's astonishing that there hasn't been any major new university. There have been lots of minor new universities, but the universities that really count in America were all founded more than a hundred years ago.
0: Yeah, that's an amazing point. I think you date date it back to eighteen ninety one or something like that. Since we've had a major new institution of world class renown created. So given your beliefs, these beliefs, you are pretty prescriptive and detailed in your proposal for how the new university would look and and function. But those details aside, I wanted to ask, what are the key distinguishing characteristics of this new university, broadly speaking? Is it mainly the ideological balance or is it not even balance? Are you really looking for a more conservative institution, the Fox News of universities, if you will. But what are the big goals here?
1: Well, I wouldn't be looking for a university that was specifically conservative. I'd be looking for a university that consisted of dissenters from today's academic model. And I certainly, what I would be looking for mostly is an absolutely first-rate university. And to me, that means no postmodernism. Because if you don't believe that there's anything true, if you believe that one narrative is as good as another, then there's no quality control at all. And the same thing tends to be true of uh, people who are in favor of diversity. They don't really care whether the people that they're hiring are any good. They care whether they're diverse. And, of course, that doesn't mean ideological diversity either. Uh, I would be willing to welcome some people with uh rather left-wing views, I, don't, I can imagine actually a very rigorous Marxist who would, uh, whom I would like at least to be able to hire at such a university. But I would like it to be done on the basis of merit rather than just ideology. And that is very, very rare in today's academic hiring. That, does, that isn't really what people are looking for anymore. They're looking for something fashionable that is postmodernist. They're looking for something ideological that is progressive. And they're not looking for what—they even question the the idea whether there is any such thing as merit, either on philosophical grounds—that's the postmodernism—or because they say if they're leftist enough, that's just an excuse for not hiring enough women, blacks, Hispanics, uh, transsexuals or whatever, uh, that's uh, it. And of course, that plugs into postmodernism just fine, which says it's all a question of who has the power. That's the person who determines of uh, what you're going to decide is merit. And they're th- therefore, they attack the whole idea of merit.
0: So really, it sounds like you're just approaching this in a spirit of classic liberal inquiry and education.
1: Well, yes, I really am. And I do think that the people who should back such a university would largely be people who are from the, well, let's say from the seventy percent of Americans who are are more, uh, who are more conservative than the remaining thirty percent or so, the sorts of people uh, who don't think that Bernie Sanders is wonderful, but who may consider themselves moderate Democrats for example. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, every now and then you begin to see that Bernie Sanders says things like the fact that uh, that uh, outside speakers shouldn't be shouted down and shouldn't be roughed up at universities. Uh, <laughs> He's much more of an old line leftist and, and actually is not as much of, is not anywhere near as much of a problem as uh, most people on campuses today.
0: Would this new university that you propose have a religious affiliation?
1: Well, I have said that it would be good if it had a sort of Judeo-Christian orientation and said something about that. And the reason I want to say that is that today, utter secularism turns out to be absolute prejudice against religion, and I do think that that's part of what's happening. I would not favor denominational university, and I wouldn't favor hiring specifically for people who have meet some kind of a religious test. You certainly should be willing to hire atheists and things like that. But uh, I would like it if there was a Judeo-Christian Elements to that university. However, you know, I would say this isn't the kind of idea that you can patent. The idea of a new university is one that anybody can take and run with. And it is one that if there were money for it, we would see what the donors wanted, we would see what the people who could be hired wanted, and it could develop in several different directions.
0: Right. Yeah, I understand you're basically putting the ball in play, but you're doing so in a detailed way. I mean, you've thought through things like the look of the common areas for students and the recreational facilities are available. So this isn't just a five-paragraph proposal. You've really worked through the details to to get that ball in play, I think. So it's very thought-provoking. Another specific policy question, I know you've taught at Hillsdale College, which is known for not accepting any federal money so they can maintain their full independence. Would you want this university to similarly avoid any federal student aid or other federal dollars to keep that independence?
1: No, I don't think so. Um it's uh I don't think that that actually turned out to make very much difference at Hillsdale. It was a fundraising ploy on the part of Hillsdale like so much about Hillsdale, but I don't think it's necessary. It is, of course, true that there are some federal regulations of various kinds that are making the problem worse in American universities. But the real problem with American universities is not that the universities uh, want to resist this kind of regulation and they're being forced to to do left-wing things that they don't want to do. They're very eager to do this. They very often take federal regulations and run with them and do things that the federal regulations don't say they are necessary at all. Uh, I don't think that that's a problem. And insofar as it is a problem, it should be fought through the courts. It should be fought through political uh, avenues. It should not be done by just saying we're not going to accept any federal money, not to speak of the fact that if you have a really large university, Hillsdale, of course, is a small college, you're going to need to accept federal funding for scientific research, for all kinds of other different kinds of research. And I just don't see that that's uh, that. No, I wouldn't be in favor of that.
0: As far as the prospects for a new university like this actually being created, you explain how practical matters like funding could be addressed with the many wealthy conservative donors who are out there. So certain aspects of it seem very doable. But you also indicate that there is a limited time window for this to be done, that time is running out. Can you explain why there is a narrow window of opportunity here?
1: Well, we're dealing with a very strong trend towards hiring leftist that has been going on for some time but is getting stronger and stronger and now we're really getting a situation in which the bias against anyone who isn't a leftist or isn't a postmodernist and they're getting to be pretty much merged is explicit where in hiring committees people really just won't even look at people who do uh, don't share that consensus. They say things like, "This is contrary to our university's mission of diversity." This person obviously believes that men and women are different. With uh, this, is just not acceptable anymore in uh, our discourse. We're just we're not going to hire somebody like this. This is somebody who is definitely religious. Uh, this we simply can't accept that sort of bigoted. Uh, attitude from the past in our university. This is contrary to our mission. Our mission is diversity, diversity, diversity. These people are not in favor of diversity first. They're in favor of something else. We won't hire them. And if that happens and goes on at every major university for a long time, and it's already started, and I don't see any sign of it's abating, People who don't agree with that consensus won't go to graduate school. They won't get jobs. And in the future, if you were looking to hire professors at such a university, there just wouldn't be enough to be able to do it. Especially not if you insist on good ones. Now there would be. Now it wouldn't be a problem. You'd only need about a thousand professors and there are a thousand good professors out there and more. It could be done. But 10 years from now, probably they wouldn't be all retired. But you see, the the people who are being hired now will be around for a very long time. The people who are retiring now were hired 50 years ago. And that was a time when the hiring bias was very much less than it is now. So we are really dealing with a case in which People are retiring who would be the kinds of people you want at such a university, and they aren't being replaced. And every every new cohort who's been been hired since 1970 has been more left-wing, more postmodernist. And those are the people who are are now have now become an overwhelming majority in American universities. And Eventually, there just wouldn't be enough to be able to staff a university that wasn't like them if things continue the way they are now. Now, once you had such a university, you can train graduate students and then you can, can reverse the whole process. Those people will then be part of the American University in the future. But that's why I think you probably need to start over and start now.
0: So the clock is ticking. And I know as I interview you today, the book has not yet been officially released. So it hasn't gotten the full media response yet that it will. I don't know if you've gotten much feedback yet on these ideas or not, but I wanted to ask, how do you think this proposal will be received? And do you think it will be well received by the proper people who can actually get something like this started and put in motion?
1: Well, you know, it doesn't have to be received by uh, favorably by people who are in American universities today, and it won't be. As for the proposal for vetting dissertations and a couple of other proposals I've made, such as uh, legislation limiting the size of administrative spending in American universities. Harvard, for example, spends 40 percent of its budget on administration. I would favor a cap of 20 percent. Uh, I'd favor an academic honesty commission to punish people who completely make up facts, who plagiarize other people and so on. That, I think, is important, too. For the legislation, all you have to do is convince a few people in Congress and get uh the legislation proposed, and get people to vote for it. And I think that in a Republican Congress, it wouldn't be difficult to get it done. And actually, maybe it would attract, I think it would attract some Democratic support. From the standpoint of a new university, actually, you don't need much more than one rich person who says, all right, I'm going to give this a shot. Well, let's pay for a planning commission. And then once it looks as if it's going to actually happen, I have a feeling people would follow. So you don't need to get a very broad-based amount of enthusiasm behind these ideas for them to to come into effect. That was one of the things I was careful about. So many books on American universities seem to suggest that the only hope is if everybody in American universities changes his mind. And that's, well, I mean, it might happen in 50 years, 100 years, but it's certainly not going to happen very quickly. And I don't know how to bring it about.
0: I'd like to ask one other question about the book and then a final question about your current projects. But as far as the book, towards the end, and I'm drawing here on your general expertise and training, towards the end of the book, you offer thoughts on periods of renaissance in world history and periods of great cultural productivity, these boom periods. And you speak about why those bursts of success happened when they did. For example, why was the golden age of Greece golden at that time? What are your observations there? And what does that have to do with your proposal?
1: Well, in some ways, it's ridiculous to say that American culture today is in decline. If you look at American medicine, if you look at uh american science in all sorts of different ways we're not in decline at all we are going from strength to strength we're in great shape but in terms of the humanities i think we're in sad shape we have this ideology on campus which is about the only ideology we've got going uh, we've got some dissent from it but this is the this is the consensus on american campuses and it's one that's against excellence. It's one that is against the very idea of quality. And it's going to tell in the long run. And eventually, I think it's going to tell on science. It's, uh, people are going to say, well, yes, it's true that our faculty in physics and chemistry has won the Nobel Prize, but there aren't enough women in it. There aren't enough blacks in it there isn't a single transsexual in our whole uh, physics department this has got to change and therefore you will we'll have to lower standards if some people say they're lowering standards but i say i of course i'm i'm talking i'm not talking as me i'm talking as somebody who's saying this in uh a faculty meeting or in a a search committee meeting, what I say is that what we need is not the conventional criteria for excellence in physics, the kind that actually lead to reproducible experiments. What we need is people with the right color of their skins and uh, the right diversity. That's what we really need. And that's a big threat to science.
0: My last question is about what your current projects are, what you're working on now, and I'm curious if you're going back to your day job, so to speak, in your traditional area, or are you leaving some room to continue to see this proposal through and perhaps pursue it further?
1: Well, if I get a call from somebody who says, I want you to serve on a planning commission for a new university, I'm going to answer the phone. And I'm going to, I'm certainly going to do that if I, I have i uh, I'm going to keep my hand in in the sense that I'll write the occasional article. We're going to see what happens if uh, it turns out that there is some enthusiasm for some of these proposals. And if I have any part in implementing them, I'd be glad to do it. I am, however, in the midst of the third volume of a book on the Byzantine historians that I want to write. And I'm continuing to write, and that is a research project that I'm not abandoning. But uh, And then I intend to write a one-volume book on the Byzantine historians. The Byzantine historians actually may seem like something very esoteric, but some of the world's great historians were Byzantine, uh, almost a half dozen of them. And they aren't very well known, but uh, I think they're very worth reading. And I intended that to be a major research project, and it's largely done, and I'd like to finish it up. But if there's anything I can do to get the American University out of the tailspin that it's in, I will do it. And if that means interrupting my research and shelving it indefinitely, then I'll do that.
0: Very good. The new book is The University We Need, Reforming American Higher Education, I've been speaking with Dr. Warren Treadgold. Thank you so much for your time and your thoughts. It's a very original and enjoyable and thought-provoking book, and I enjoyed discussing it with you.
1: Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed discussing it with you.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye.